Good morning. Good to see everyone this morning. Good to be back up here and addressing you and having the privilege of bringing the Word of God to feed you and to nourish you, to strengthen you for the journey. Our text today comes from the end of Peter's letter. I'll be reading 1 Peter 5, verses, uh, the end of verse 5 through verse 11. So let's give ear to the reading of God's Word. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the reading of the very word of the living God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for meeting with us as we gather together in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We meet, O Lord, as a people called by your name. Father, I pray that as we open your word, that your spirit would minister to us, to fortify us, to direct us. Open our eyes, O Lord, to the unseen realm and give us the assurance that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We pray this in the name of our deliverer, our conqueror, Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Well, Metacroft is entering a season of summer psalms. Um, one of the reasons is that uh, it's difficult for a pastor to have any kind of continuity in a sermon series with people going on vacations and all over the place. And psalms are nice, but they're kind of uh, bite-sized portions. Uh, you can have a standalone message and be fed uh, by the Word of God. Now, Psalms, uh, we don't know the context for many Psalms. Some we do. But we can see in looking at the Psalms that they arise from contexts of, or situations, circumstances of conflict, often by persecution. For example, we see that in today's Psalm that was read for us. But wasn't read for us was more was uh, the superscription to that psalm. Now, superscriptions are basically the titles to psalms, and not uh, many of them have them, but some do, and often you'll see that they involve a conflict of uh, warfare. The here's the superscription to Psalm 18, and these the super these superscriptions are not. Um, they're not put there by a, an editor of our English Bible. 
They are actually the Word of God. Psalm 18, here's the one for today. Psalm 18, to the leader, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, as we look at these Psalms, and we see those with superscriptions, those without, and we see this conflict, we see that the enemy that is being faced by David and others is a flesh and blood enemy with swords of steel. But our enemy is not flesh and blood. But there's an application in the Word of God throughout the Psalms, wherever we see this conflict in the Old Testament, to our ultimate enemy. Not flesh and blood, but spiritual. And our warfare as Christ's church is spiritual. We, unlike the times of the Crusades, which was wrong, we do not wield the sword of steel, but we wield the sword of the Spirit because our enemy is spiritual. Now, when you think of spiritual warfare, what pops into your mind? Maybe it's a Hollywood depiction of spiritual warfare. Or maybe if you're more biblically minded, you might go to Jesus. Actually, at the outset of his earthly ministry, after his baptism, his public ministry, where was he led? He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to do battle with the devil. And throughout his ministry, Jesus had confrontations with demons. But either way, Hollywood or the biblical notion, the biblical idea of spiritual warfare, the pictures that we see, this seems strange to us. Because we've never likely experienced anything like that that we read or have seen uh, before. It might seem a little even far-fetched to us. But then we come to places in the Bible like this. Look at verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Now Peter was writing to Christians, believers, who were scattered about because they were being persecuted. They were in situations of adversity, undergoing suffering. And throughout his letter, Peter writes, he speaks of things that we would expect him to speak of. Here are these people who are away from home, scattered, and so Peter reminds them that they have a heavenly home. They have an inheritance laid up for them in heaven, reserved for them, and they are preserved for it. So he speaks to them of of this heavenly hope to encourage them. He speaks of holy living, that they are called to obedience to Jesus Christ, whom they know as Lord. 
And Peter also speaks of just what we've seen in this series on Daniel. Here was Daniel and his friends who were in Babylon, a foreign land, and yet they were witnesses for the true and living God. And that's what we're to be like. We live in a world that is fallen, in a Babylon. And we live as witnesses for Jesus Christ. And Peter writes to encourage his readers in their faithful witness, by their word, by their deed. But now as Peter winds down his letter, what does he talk about? He talks about the devil and spiritual warfare as though that were something ordinary to the Christian life. Well, it is. We look at other places in the New Testament. We look at the um, letters written by John or James, and what do we see? We see them writing about spiritual warfare, about a spiritual enemy. Paul teaches on spiritual warfare. In his letter to the Ephesians, Every chapter, there are six chapters in Ephesians, every chapter uh, introduces something, deals with something related to spiritual warfare. In Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, uh, there is, it's filled with training about spiritual warfare. Now that's 2 Corinthians. And what's interesting is this, is that when you look at 1 Corinthians, what do you see? You see heresy and division and immorality. And so it's like that when Paul gets to 2 Corinthians, he's pulling back the curtain to see this spiritual warfare to say, now we understand what's going on. Now we see what we have to deal with. In fact, every New Testament writer says something about spiritual warfare. So it's something that we need to know about, something that we need to understand, something that we need to engage in. Our Lord Jesus, in His high priestly prayer recorded in John 17, He prays for His disciples who were there with Him, but He also prays for those who would believe in Him. That includes us. This is what he prayed. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And when Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, part of that prayer, that daily prayer involves, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What all this means is this. Spiritual warfare is not something extraordinary to the Christian life. The life that we live, it is ordinary to it. In fact, in times of suffering and adversity, it is ratcheted up, intensified. So this morning, in our time together, I'd like us to take note of two aspects for our conduct of spiritual warfare. 
First is this. Spiritual warfare is conducted in weakness. Spiritual warfare is conducted in weakness. Now, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, that earthly ministry involved confrontation with demons. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. The writer of Hebrews uh, tells us that Jesus was born into this world so that, quote, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. In his first epistle, John says this. You know, sometimes we talk about what is the reason for the season, Christmas. Here's what John says. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And we see that being played out in the Gospels. When the religious leaders of Jesus' day saw him casting out demons, you know what they said? They said that he is, you're possessed of the devil. They say that of Jesus. And he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of the devil. And Jesus responded to them and said, that's absurd. Don't you know that a kingdom uh, divided, the kingdom is divided against itself? It'd be absurd because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And what was Jesus' point? The point was he was actually initiating an other kingdom. A redemptive kingdom. A kingdom of righteousness and joy and peace. Remember in Daniel's, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, in Daniel 2, and there were those kingdoms, I think it was the statue and all that, but he said there's going to be this kingdom that's going to come and it's going to last forever and ever. And that's the kingdom that Jesus said He was bringing into this world. He said this, if I cast out demons, then indeed the kingdom of God is among you. In one exchange with the religious leaders, Jesus said this, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Now many look at that, what Jesus does there, binding the strong man, and they see that as a template or a tutorial in how we go about uh, conducting spiritual warfare. It involves something to do with binding the devil, and we see this played out, and we read it in books on evangelism or books on counseling, and about somehow binding them, and there's naming and all this stuff, but in order to bind them. The problem is, is that when we come to the epistles that give us the direction for living the Christian life, we don't find any notion of doing that. We're not, we're to, we're not told that, explained that as a way for the conduct of spiritual warfare. In fact, spiritual warfare is not, is not conducted by our binding the strong man. Rather, spiritual warfare is conducted by our faith in the one who did bind the strong man. 
Peter positions us for spiritual warfare. Again in verse 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. See where it starts? You see the orientation that we have to spiritual warfare? You see the mentality we have? It is by humbling, humbling ourselves. When the Apostle Paul was struggling with pride, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And Paul called it a messenger of Satan. And Paul asked God three times to take this thorn from him. And this is what God said. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Spiritual warfare is conducted in weakness. That weakness is expressed by humbling ourselves. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like for you, for me, to humble ourselves? Well, Peter here uses three phrases that give us an idea of what it means to humble ourselves. Uh, The first is in verse 6, when he speaks of Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God. Now that phrase, that expression, is a common one for God's deliverance in the Exodus. We see the mighty hand of God referenced in the book of Exodus. We see it mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. In fact, Daniel, in Daniel 9, that majestic prayer of Daniel in chapter 9, Daniel will pray this, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. You see what that's saying? It's speaking of this God who has delivered us from the domain of darkness delivered us from the kingdom of the evil one and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves it speaks of god who has brought us to bow the knee before jesus christ so that when we humble ourselves notice the word peter uses under the mighty hand of god what are we doing we are submitting to him who is lord of lords and king of kings We are submitting not only our will, like our Lord Jesus, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are submitting our very selves because we belong to God. Isn't that what we just read in the Heidelberg Catechism? That we belong to God? And so we humble ourselves by submitting ourselves 
to him who is our God who has delivered us. The second phrase that Peter uses is also in verse 6. He says, at the proper time, he may exalt you. That at the proper time, he may exalt you. In other words, God, in the adversities of our life, when we are dealing with difficult things, we are reminded that God, God rules. He reigns. Everything is under his control, serves his purposes. And what that means is we wait on the Lord. We press on in faith, believing this, that God will bring relief in his time. Now what he says in verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, doesn't seem like a little while, but in the big scheme of things, just a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory, a little while, eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So you see this humility, this humbling ourselves carries a note, carries a chord of expectation of how our God will work, knowing that he is. And here's the third. The third phrase Peter uses is in verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him. Now the word for anxieties here is basically a catch-all word uh, that means whatever troubles us. That's why sometimes you'll see it translated cares or whatever, whatever distress. And here what Peter is doing is he is calling us to complete and continual dependence on our God. Complete and continual dependence on our God, knowing that he cares for us and that his grace will sustain us. So how do we humble ourselves? We humble ourselves by submitting to the God who delivered us in confident, confident expectation of his purposes and full dependence upon him, declaring this in verse 11, that to him be the dominion, not to the evil one, to him be the dominion forever and ever. All right, so that's the first principle. Spiritual warfare is conducted in weakness. Here's the other. Spiritual warfare is conducted by standing firm. By standing firm. Now, for those in the military, when they're on the field of battle, there will come those times, if they're at war, when they will encounter the enemy and there will be battles, skirmishes, but even when they are not in the thick of those battles, they need to be on guard. On guard, alert to an enemy, on the lookout. And Peter's telling us this. That needs to be our mentality, our perspective, our worldview as we sojourn in this world. 
Though, as Jesus prayed, though we are uh, not of the world, we are in it. Well, what's so disturbing about that? Listen to what John says in his first epistle. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's where we live. Peter calls us to be on high alert. Verse 8, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And Peter's telling us this, as long as we are in this world, we cannot let down our guard. Way back at the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were expelled, and we turn the chapter from chapter 3 in Genesis to chapter 4, and we see Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve. We live on the same side of the fall as did Cain and Abel. And what did God say there? He said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Spiritual warfare belongs to ordinary Christian life and is something that we engage in every day, day in and day out. We engage it in spiritual warfare in our family, at the workplace, our recreation, what we use, do on our screens. It all carries spiritual warfare. Now, how do we do that? How do we engage in this warfare? Well, probably the most familiar passage for the conduct of spiritual warfare is the last chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. Now, when we think of warfare, what comes to mind? You know, usually we think of you know, two armies squaring off against one another and strategy and assault and planning and uh, all that mobilization. Here's what Paul says. We engage how we engage the enemy. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore. Four times, the Apostle Paul highlights the word stand, the strategy stand, for the way that we uh, conduct spiritual warfare. But that's not what Peter says. What did Peter say? In verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. Now, 
Is Peter giving us a different approach to spiritual warfare? Here's Paul saying, stand. Peter saying, resist. You know, is Peter talking about kind of a, a defensive posture and Paul's talking about more offensive? What's, what's going on? Actually, Peter, when he uses the word resist, when translated resist, he uses the same word that Paul does when Paul speaks of withstanding in the evil day. The word is simply the Greek word for stand with the prefix, prefix anti, anti-opposed. And so what he's saying is this, is that we stand against, we oppose, we stand firm. In fact, Peter uses it again in verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What's our strategy for conducting spiritual warfare? To stand. Now what's Hollywood going to do with that? I mean, that would make for the dullest movie ever. But standing is our strategy for this reason. Our victory is in Christ. Our victory is in Jesus. Standing is a word, a concept to express our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. Just what Paul has been talking about throughout his letter to the Ephesians. We are united with Christ. We are bound up in Christ. All of the blessings of salvation belong to us in Christ. It's a word that speaks of our union with Christ for our salvation. So that when we look at John, John 15, and Jesus is talking about, the, uh, uh, that gives us the image of the vine and the branches. Remember what he said there? He gave a different word for, for uh, union with Christ. And that was called abide. Abide in me and I in you. So John uses the word abide. Paul uses the word stand. As we abide in Christ for fruit, so we stand in Christ to fight. Union with Christ. How do we go about that though? How do we go about standing in Christ against the schemes of our enemy, the devil? Now, when we look at the Bible, the Bible gives us an intelligence report. It gives us, uh, it, tells, it shows us what our enemy is like. Now, it doesn't describe the demons. It, it, it describes helps us to understand our enemy by speaking of the chief of the demons, Satan. And so we have the various names by which we learn our enemy. We see his tactics. We see his schemes. We see the way that he goes about things throughout Scripture. Uh, for example, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. That's, that's one thing about him. He is called the deceiver. He's called the father of lies. When he lies, what does he do? He speaks his native language. He is called the tempter. 
Now, with this intelligence, with this reconnaissance, what, what do, how do we stand in Christ knowing these things? Against Satan's tactic of accusation, we stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cleansed by his blood, clothed in his righteousness. So that when we once again involve ourselves with something that we have repented of, and we come before our God, and Satan whispers, this is your 20th time you've done this. This is your 200th time. I think that's enough. The grace of God, the blood of Jesus Christ, only can cleanse so much. It can only go so far. Or your sin is so heinous, do you think a holy God is going to continue to love you? And we answer with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where we say that my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Or a song we sang a couple weeks ago, um, before the throne of God above. It says, one, of the, one of the stanzas says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, which we know painfully well, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Do you see how we answer Satan's accusations? Do you see how we conduct spiritual warfare? How about Satan's uh, deceptions? There, against Satan's deceptions, we stand firmly in what the Apostle Paul calls the Word of Christ, the revealed Word of God, the body of truth that God has inscripturated for us. Paul says to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly. And that reminds us of this. It reminds us that when he says to let the Word uh, it's in the context of ministering to one another. And reminds us that we don't stand alone. We are a body. We are the body of Christ. And that's why, for example, in Ephesians 3, it says if, if there is any, found in any of you a sinful, unbelieving heart, then we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We saw in James that when a brother is wandering, we need to pursue them as they wander from the truth and bring them back to Jesus Christ. There is an us, a together. Isn't that reflected in verse 9? Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then how about Satan's temptations? How do we combat that? Against, against Satan's temptations... We stand firm in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Take note of Paul's prayer in Colossians 1 as that's driven home to us that we may know the power, the resurrection power that has brought about a new creation, that has brought about this kingdom. How does Paul put it? 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, that's the way that we conduct spiritual warfare. That's the way we stand in Christ and look to Him. Peter has told us, about, uh, told us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. Now, where do we see that? Where do we see Satan prowling around? I mean, we just sang A Mighty Fortress, and Luther wrote, though this world with devils filled, where are all these devils? Are they behind, hiding behind bushes? or what, what is it? Well, our enemy is a spiritual enemy, in the, so that in a sense we would not expect to see him, would we? Because he is unseen. Now, unseen does not mean, mean unreal. It just means that there is an other dimension to God's creation that we don't see with our physical eyes. Unseen does not mean not real. But what we do say is this. We see the influence of the evil one. We know Satan and his uh, fallen angels, demons, are at work. We know they are at work directly. But we also know that his influence, we also see his influences. In John 12, this is interesting. This is how Jesus described the devil. Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world. And that world, of course, is the fallen world. What that suggests to us is this. In this fallen world, we would expect to see those who still belong to the evil one. We would expect to see the institutions of this world used as instruments of the evil one against Christ. The, instruments of, uh, the uh, institutions of this world try to tell us what is good, what is right, what is true, whether, what, what is worry, worthy, and often the institutions of this world will do that and teach us these things and promote these things, and we, it is contrary to what God has told us in His Word. Many times they will put, it, put these things in noble terms to make them seem, or euphemisms, to make it seem like, well, it's okay, even though it runs contrary to what God has said in His Word. You know what? We look around us today. In this fallen world, knowing that Satan is at work, and we see these very things. We see Satan active through secular educational institutions that will seek to indoctrinate people contrary to the revealed will of God. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, it speaks of the doctrine of demons. 1 Timothy 4, 1. Or it might be uh, righteous political ideologies 
or a political cause and champion will promote those things that it considers to be righteous and that it passes off as righteous. Where they will be, in fact, employing what we saw in James this time last year. A demonic wisdom. Look at James' description in James 3 of what this demonic wisdom produces and see if you can't see it in our land in this day. Or Satan, another instrument of Satan are those churches that have untethered themselves, that they have become unmoored from the Word of God. You know what Jesus calls them? In the letters to, to the churches of Revelation, he calls these churches synagogues of Satan as they serve the agenda of our adversary. In fact, I read, I'll read editorials in newspapers where it will, the, 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 uh, edit, the person who wrote the article will quote a church. It will speak to a, an issue that is depraved, an issue that is contrary to the Word of God, the explicit Word of God. And it will quote these pastors looking for the seal of approval for what God calls evil. That is spiritual warfare. That is where we see Satan on the prowl. That is where we see the effects of this present evil age. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 2, Paul speaks of this. He speaks of wicked and evil men. But then listen to what he says in verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. You hear what he's saying? Wicked and evil men. The evil one, the evil men, are tools of the evil one who is our ultimate enemy, our actual enemy. And what did Paul write to Corinth? Again, this is uh, 2 Corinthians. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his, his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So where do we see Satan on the prowl? Wherever Christ is opposed. We encounter our spiritual enemy not only through his schemes, but also through his agents in this fallen world that is in rebellion against God and his Christ. My friends, this is where we live. This is what we who bear the name of Jesus Christ need to take into account day in and day out knowing that we have an enemy intent on devouring us through his schemes, lies, and oppressions. Let me just close by telling you about Peter. Peter, whose letter we're, we just, I just preached from. Peter learned the lesson of spiritual warfare the hard way. On the night 
when Jesus was betrayed, Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. What did Peter do? Peter turned to Jesus with his head held high and his chest puffed out, and he said, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Even if all else fall away, I will not. And Jesus looked at Peter, and he said, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And you know how that turned out? After Jesus was arrested, Peter denied him three times. At the third denial, Luke's the only one that records this. Evidently, Jesus was being led across the courtyard. When Peter denied Jesus that third time, he looked up, and there was Jesus looking right at him. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. And now in this letter, we find that Peter learned the danger of pride. Peter learned to take seriously the spiritual adversary. And he learned the absolute need of all of us for humility in order to resist the devil and stand firm in the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would not allow the evil one to soften the impact of your word. Protect him from plucking up the seed sown this morning, but may it take root and bear fruit in our lives, O Lord, that we might walk with you, our Lord and our God, our deliverer, our rock, our shield, our fortress. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.